Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that it would be loud, it would be authoritative, that it would be beautiful, that it would be stunning to us. And a text, God, that uh, reminds us of the importance of knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we ask that you would make Jesus bigger in our eyes, more impressive in our eyes, more central in our hearts, that more than anything else that we would leave this time more thoroughly amazed by our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's what we need more than anything else. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A bunch of years ago, one of my kids was uh, two or three years old. We were downtown Bellingham. We're walking around as a family, and I look over, and he is holding um, what appears to be a uh, coffee cup, probably from Starbucks or something, that was very dirty, and he is drinking out of this coffee cup that he had just found. And so Katie and I, we run over to him. We, we, you know, take it out of his hand as fast as we can. We open it up and whatever was in it was most certainly not coffee. We have no idea what was in it. And so Katie reaches into her purse and she grabs some hand sanitizer and she rubs it on his face. We're like making him stick his tongue out, rubbing on his tongue. We're just trying to do anything we can to disinfect him um, from what he had just consumed. And so in light of that, what I began to do with my kids as they were younger, and I've probably scarred them for life in lots of ways. Here's one of them. What I did is I said, every time we go anywhere, I said, kids, I just need you to know that every surface, everything you might want to touch, any, anything at all, every, like where you're walking, everything is covered in urine and feces. You just got to know everything is covered in urine and feces. And it's become a bit of a joke in our family. Now that my kids are older, they still remember this. I didn't make them too neurotic, but I would just be like, everything is covered in urine and feces. I will tell you this. I think the text we're looking at today, it's not saying that, but it is trying to to be a warning. It is an alert. It is like a you better know what's going on and you better be ready and you better be prepared. What we're going to look at is really one massive question. Who is Jesus? It's probably the most contentious, debated, important, life-changing question you can ask. On one Hand, the answer is really simple, but the problem is it's always under attack. And that's what we're going to see in this text, the threats that are all around to answering that question, who is Jesus? So we're going to look at the always present threat, the always present help, and the always pressing need. Wherever you are, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is God's holy, Christ-exalting, clarifying word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and following. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Feel free to grab a seat. The always present threat, to understand the threat that was facing this group of Christians and the threat that truly is always facing every Christian for the last 2,000 years, we're going to ask a couple questions. The first one is this, what time is it? There's a, there's a, there's a time that's established in this text in verse 18 and following, and it's helpful to understand what time it is. John is writing back to uh, churches that he loves, people that he loves, uh, and, he, and he says, it is the last hour. Now, there's nobody that I could find, no one that takes that literally as a 60-minute increment. It wouldn't make any sense when John wrote it. By the time the audience even read the letter, it would have already been past that hour. So when he says it's the last hour, he's not talking about a 60-minute period. Last hour, most simply, represents a period of human history. It's the time, if you go through the Bible, we'll summarize it very simply this way, it's the time from Jesus' resurrection to his return. So it's an, it, this hour actually is 2,000 years, and it will continue until Jesus returns. So the last hour is the time period from when Jesus rose from the grave to when he comes back to establish his kingdom. Let me tell you what's important about this hour. It's marked by a few different things throughout the Bible. I'm not going to give you all of them. I'll just give you a few of them. One of them is the global expansion of the church. It's the coming of God's kingdom breaking into this earth. It's people going to the ends of the earth and lifting up the name of Jesus that they might be saved. But it is simultaneously a time when the kingdoms of this earth are opposed against it. That the kingdom of God is advancing, but violent men take it by force. That there's a conflict between the proclamation of Jesus as Lord, as Jesus as the Christ, and then people denying that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the Christ. This last hour is right now. And what John is saying is be alert. Be aware. Be prepared. Be vigilant. He's saying understand this present cultural moment. The word he uses is children or, or dear children. It's a father trying to prepare his kids as they go out into a world. Emma, my oldest, is um, she's heading off to college soon. 
she's going to go to Wazoo here in, in August, move over to Pullman, and um, just, uh, just an amazing young lady, just uh, so impressed with her, and she was going off and, you know, we're selling things into her her whole life, trying to teach her about Jesus and open up the Bible. She's been a part of Redeemer for, for most of her life since it got planted, and all, like, we want her to love Jesus and know Jesus, and she goes off to a university. I, you know, I'm always constantly buying her books and different things, and I bought her a book recently called Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping Faith in college. I thought it'd be a really helpful, it looked really interesting, really helpful book to just say, hey, Emma, here's some things to prepare you as you go into a place that's not going to believe everything you believe and not going to believe everything about Jesus that you believe. And one of the things I love about the letter or, or the, the book is that each chapter is actually a letter. So it's addressed as a letter. And what's, what's really cool is each letter starts, Dear Emma. And so it was kind of fun as, as Emma's reading this, she kept saying, Dad, she came to me like halfway through the book and she's like, it's kind of weird. Like every time I open this up, it's like says, Dear Emma. And I start reading, I hear your voice. And I said, well, Emma, it's time for you uh, to actually uh, be, uh, to know that, that, that actually the author of that book, that's my pen name. I've been writing books, been very well published. And now you finally know. And she looked at me and said, that's not true. Dad. I said, no, it's not true, but I still think it's kind of cool. That it says, dear Emma, and I got it for you because of what some of these chapters cover. Things like this. Chapter three, there are a lot of different views here. How can we say that Christianity is the only right religion? Chapter four, my Christian morals are viewed as hateful and intolerant. Shouldn't I be more loving and accepting? This is the hour that we're in, that what we believe is not believed by everyone, in fact, opposed by many. Or chapter one, I'm worried about being a Christian at a secular university. How will I survive? I got the book really because of that question. How will I survive? How will my faith survive? How will I flourish? And while Emma is going off to college in what is both a wonderful and very challenging stage of life, the reality is every follower of Christ is in the same hour. It's the hour of pro proclaiming Christ and the hour where Christ is diminished. Got another question. Really kind of loaded word. Uh... Depending on your background, a very off-putting word. Um, could be a very frightening word, this word antichrist. We see it um, a few different times in this text. We see it for the first time in verse 18. Children is the last hour, and as you have heard, that antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Um, so I want to ask who and what is the antichrist? Sometimes, maybe far too often, the church spends too much time trying to predict what's coming or who's coming that they, they miss out on what's already here. So it's, it's like as soon as the word antichrist is spoken, the charts come out and the newspapers get open and we start trying to figure out who it is. And John's point here is not that you might point to the individual figures, that you might be aware of how this is happening already. And instead of speculation, this text is inviting us to be aware, to be alert, and to be ready. Who's the Antichrist, right? When um, I, uh, I Googled that, don't Google that. Don't, like, I, I've done it for us as a church, and it, don't, don't Google it. I think something that would be better than Googling it is that we would actually open up our Bibles and look at how John actually uses that word Antichrist to see if we can maybe get a better understanding of what's going on 
in this text. Um, there's four different times that John uses it. I've already read one of them, actually two of them, but I want to recap. First John 2.22 says this, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Or First John 4, 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist. What you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Or Second John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Who's the Antichrist and, and, and what is the Antichrist? Let me give you a summary. We'll, we'll put a slide up on the screen. Let me give you a summary of statements from those verses that we can maybe try to get a, get a picture of this. Antichrist is in the sense of being against Jesus. So this isn't a Jesus replacement, although that can be a, an alternate Christ, but this is a, someone who's an opponent to Jesus. These antichrists, John is saying they've already come, that they have the spirit of the antichrist. In that sense, anyone that is declaring and denying these things, which we'll summarize in a, sec, in a second, are forerunners of the antichrist. They're present and they're plentiful. We hear it in the language that many have come and they are all over the world. They're liars, deniers, and deceivers. Specifically from this text in 1 John, what we see is they deny that Jesus is the Christ. We actually see this in 2 John 2. They deny that He is the, is the Christ, which is a denial of the identity and work of Jesus. They deny that Jesus came in the flesh, which is a denial of the humanity of Jesus. And they deny the Father has a Son, which is ultimately a denial of the deity of Jesus. They are denying the Trinitarian understanding of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And let me give you a frightening one they're often part of the visible church. What we see, people that self-select as Christians are a part of a church. We see that in verse 19. They went out from us. These are people amongst us. Let me say it this way. The biggest threats are never going to come from the world, but from within. They're not out there. They're inside the church. Doctrinal denials and missteps and fallacies and heresies are going to come sometimes from people wearing the name of Christ. Now, sometimes these, these denials are um, out of ignorance. Sometimes people say things doctrinally that are wrong um, because they just don't know the doctrine better. I know there's times that I misstep. Sometimes these denials are willful. Sometimes they're a recasting or reframing to try to make Jesus more palatable to whatever the modern sensibilities are. So we might deny his virgin birth because that's, people want to put that at arm's length or we deny his miracle working ability because we, we want to be uh, naturalistic in our worldviews. Sometimes we, there's all sorts of things that we might deny. The result, whatever it is, from all these antichrists is confusion about who Jesus actually is. It always comes down to Jesus. Let me give you, the, over the history of the church, there's been different attacks and assaults on who Jesus is. I'll give you one that I think is very common today. 
as we think about these denials that Jesus is fully human or denials that Jesus is God, um, Ligonier, uh, or, uh, an organization of ministry that loves Jesus, every two years they put out a report, the state of theology in America, and they ask a number of different questions, and they, they survey uh, thousands of different people. From the 2020 statement, uh, statement number seven was this. So they give a statement, and then they ask you to go from like strongly disagree to strongly agree and some other kind of gradients in between. And they said this, Jesus was a great teacher but he was not God. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, the U.S. adult respondents, so just generic U.S. adult, 52% of people agreed with that statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And we can hear it in this text where, where some of these deniers, they are denying that the Father has a Son. They are, in effect, denying the deity of Christ, which is what's being said here. We have a lot of great stuff to learn from Jesus. He's smart. He's insightful. He's moral. We can follow some of his teaching, but he's not God. Okay, that's the U.S. adult response. Here's where it gets really bad, though. This is the U.S. evangelical response to that statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. U.S. evangelical, the evangelicals that believe the Bible and they love the Bible, they're Bible people, they're Jesus people. That's, that's at least historically what it meant to be evangelical people. Here was their response. 30% agreed with that statement. 30%. The threats are everywhere. We got to be alert. We have to be ready. We have to be aware. And when we begin to get Jesus wrong, we begin to get his work wrong. I carried him across a uh, blog post. It was titled this. Uh, it says, survey, majority of Americans don't believe the gospel. The, the majority of Americans, uh, Christians, do not believe the gospel. And this came from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. I'll give you just a couple of stats from what they found. They said 52% of self-declared Christians believe in a works-oriented salvation. 52% believe that we actually earn our salvation. 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians, but only 54% of those believe they will experience heaven after they die. That is tragic. Let me give you a massive one. Only 33% of Christians believe they will go to heaven solely because of confessing their sins and embracing Jesus as Savior. That's tr that, that is heartbreaking. The upshot from the blog this is how they ended. It said, Christians who believe that salvation can be earned need to read the New Testament. <laughs> it's like we need help. We need help. And thankfully, we get it. There's attacks coming. People are coming to deceive and distract from who Christ is and denying aspects of who He is. But God gives us help. We see it actually in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is in the truth. Let me give you three helps that we have. First one is this out of verse 20, the presence of God. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. The text says Holy One, but it's most likely a reference uh, to being anointed by the Holy Spirit. I'll, we'll put a text up. 2 Corinthians um, chapter 1 uh, Verses 21 through 22 says this. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses uh, 21 through 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit 
in our hearts as a guarantee. What was interesting as I was thinking about this text is you have the, the Antichrist, and the word Christ actually means anointed. So you have the anti-anointers, and then you have Christ, who is the anointed one, but this text actually says that those who believe in Christ have been anointed, and, and it's kind of like, well, what's going on? What it is is God has anointed us to know the anointed one. I love the way William Tyndale says it. He says, you are not anointed with oil in your bodies, but with the Spirit of Christ in your souls, which Spirit teaches you all truth in Christ and enables you to judge what is a lie and what is truth and to know Christ from anti-Christ. Who Jesus actually is is not confusing. The Bible is not confused on Jesus being fully man and Jesus being fully God. The confusion settles in not because of what the Bible says, but because of the disorientation of our hearts. And so what we need is God to make God real to us. And that's what verse 20 is saying. We have the presence of God. We also have the presence of God's truth. Um, There's only two commands in all of these verses. One of them is to abide in truth, and the other one is to abide in Him. Verse 24 says this. It says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. It's saying, let God's Word, let His truth, let His declarations of Christ abide in us deeply. Let it dwell in you. Plant your life into it. And there's a reason for that because the, because the attacks are coming, because the confusion's coming, because the heresies are coming, because the denouncements of Christ are coming. I was talking to Paul, our new XP, our executive pastor, and, and he mentioned um, a John Piper. I don't know if it's a sermon or, or uh, a blog post or something, but, but, but Piper was a pastor for decades and decades and decades. And, and he, he basically was just like, kind of remorsefully saying, like, I, he's like, I don't know how many Christians know enough about who Jesus is to be able to resist the, the lies that might be said about him. Or I don't know how many Christians know enough about Jesus to actually know when a lie is being said about him. And what this is saying is one of the helps we can have is to let the truth of Christ dwell in us richly, to abide in it, to stay tethered to it. Let me give you one more. So we have the presence of God. We have the presence of God's truth, but we also have the presence of God's people. The text again, it says in verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I love that this is given in the context of a community of people. There's those that are attacking Christ, but there's those that are gathered in a local church that are trying to lift up and know Christ. I was having a conversation with um, Isaac, one of our interns, who he, was, he just serves the church so much. I just want to honor him. Um, just grateful for him. He was in, the, he was in the, the church building just helping to clean it and, and keep it tidy. And, and I often get in conversation with him. He was, we were talking through this text and what was going on. And, and I don't know how it came up, but it was something about like, you know, we're all going to get stuff wrong about Jesus. Like, I'm going to get stuff wrong as a preacher. And Isaac goes, yeah, but Rob, you know, the good news is that you don't have to get everything right because there's all of us. And if you start getting things wrong, we can help you see where you have it wrong that we might make sure that we actually get it right. I thought that was just such a great insight that it's not all on one person. Getting who Christ is correct is not just on you. It's on us. And we collectively do it. it made me think a lot about... Um, uh, basically, all I watch, uh, all Katie and I watch is the Discovery Channel. 
uh, show called Alone, where people like stranded out in the woods, which is probably, I started watching it during COVID, probably a terrible show to watch during COVID. Um, or, uh, or we'll watch uh, like off-grid home builders, you know, pretty interesting watching people build these homes in the middle of like really remote areas. And I'll end up watching all these animal shows of, like Predator and Prey. And I mean, most, you know, many of you know this already. When, when, when a predator is going to attack and they're coming up to a giant herd, they're going to go after the prey that is sick and young and alone. That's who they're going to take out. God has given us his spirit to make the truth that he has revealed real, but he's given it to us, his church, that we might be able to hold it together. As I said, there's two commandments in this passage, to abide in truth and to abide in him. In the face of the present threat, this is always the most pressing need, to abide in truth and to abide in him. And to do that, we have to ask the most foundational question we can ever ask. Who is Jesus? Jeff Metters says it like this. 10 billion years from now, every one of us will exist. And the quality of our eternity will be tethered to how we answered a question. Who is Jesus? It's the most important question any of us will ever face. I asked Emma, um, 17-year-old, I said, Hey, Emma, what's the most important thing to know about Jesus? And she always, you know, I get permission from my kids to share this stuff. She says, she says, I don't know, I don't know, Dad. I'm sure there's a catechism answer to that. I think I remember something out of like the New City Catechism one time that I probably should remember. I, I just kind of, I don't know, that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. So he can actually save us. And then she goes on and she goes, you know, if you get those two things right, you're doing pretty good, and if you get them wrong, you're, you're, you're doomed. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a great answer, Emma. Jesus is God, and Jesus is man. And you'll notice those are the two very things that the Antichrist deny. Jesus is God, and Jesus is man. And I will tell you, of the many things I wish I did as a parent, um, one of the biggest things is I actually wish I would have utilized catechisms, these training manuals of question and answer with my kids more. I wish I would have done it so much more because they give clear, precise, memorable answers to really big questions that we might get God's truth to abide in us deeply so that when the onslaughts come, we can recognize them and we know how to respond. Let me give you a couple of questions and answers from the New City Catechism about who is Jesus. The way they ask it in question 20 is this, who is the Redeemer? The answer is, The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. Question 21. What sort of Redeemer? Who is Jesus? What what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? The answer. One who is truly human and also truly God. 
these simple questions and answers, and I hope you hear it in this text. And that's what John is doing. He's going back and forth, and he's not, he's not meandering in his repetition. He's trying to create an urgency and an awareness for us to say, you gotta get this right. You gotta get who Jesus is right, because there's people that are declaring falsehoods about him, and if you get it wrong, you're gonna be really wrong. It's like, let what you heard abide One of the things with that is you want to let it keep growing. You want to keep deepening. You want it to be louder and more profound and richer. And and, and, and on one hand, you have this very simple, as Emma said, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But the more that you know and the clearer you know, the better prepared you are for the counterfeit claims that might come up about Christ. And that's what was happening. The spirit of the Antichrist was bringing counterfeit claims to who Jesus is. Things like Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. You know, think about like an art expert, someone that's, that's hired. It's sort of about from Sotheby's uh, auction, you know, hiring these experts to be able to tell when a, a, a masterpiece is counterfeit or someone that, that grades in, in, um, in prices diamonds. The, the best way for them to be able to, to see a counterfeit is not by studying counterfeits, but by actually studying the real thing. Because the more that they know what the thing is supposed to actually be, the, know, the more they know the, the authentic, real, original, the better able they are to see where the counterfeits are. Because new counterfeits will always come. New challenges to who Christ is will always come. And the best way of being ready to spot them is to know increasingly and deeply and relationally and personally who is Jesus. The catechisms are helpful for that. The historic creeds of the Christian faith are helpful for that. Long, old books are really helpful for that. Have the simple answer and let it go deeper and deeper and deeper. Let me give you an example from the Chalcedonian Creed in 451. And you gotta, rem- you gotta know that when, when these creeds came out, they came out of conflict because of the challenges in the church to who Christ is. We, rem- we read these as like these beautiful summary statements, but to get to them, it came through all of this opposition to who Christ is. Listen to this statement. This is who Jesus is in contrast with what the Antichrist are saying. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord, Teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man. And there's a bunch of other statements, and I'll I'll zero in on this. Recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. This statement is talking about this really fancy, big theological word known as hypostatic union, that Christ exists as one person with two natures. And then these like without statements in this Chalcedonian statement, these without phrases is trying to make sure that we don't miss steps somewhere. So let me, let me give it to you. I'll, I'll walk through these four very quickly. Um, it's, and it's okay. If you get all of it, great. If you knew all of it, it's a good reminder. If you get very little of this, that's okay. I'm just inviting you to, to some of the deep things as we dive more into this question of who is Jesus. Without confusion, Kevin DeYoung, uh, he, he was like, when we think about without confusion, what we're saying is there's not a mixing of the divine and human, like if you took blue and yellow and mixed them and made green. That's not what we're saying with Jesus. He is fully God and fully man, but without confusion, without mixing, without change. 
What that's saying is that when Jesus became man, he didn't cease to be God. He fully stayed God without division. Jesus, in, when he became man, it, didn't, it wasn't 50% divine and then 50% human. He was fully God and fully man. And then without separation. To saying Jesus is real God and real man in one person. It's not conceptual. It's not just moral. It's not thematic. It's real. That's who Jesus is. It's the opposite of what's being denied here by these figures that rise up to deny that he came in the flesh or deny that he is truly God. Why does all this matter so much beyond being trying to be accurate, beyond trying to know actually who he is, is because who Jesus is is directly tethered to what Jesus did. Um, we see what's on the line here in verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. We see the point of what Jesus did in his name, the name Jesus, when, 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 when Mary was told what she was to name her, her coming son is God now, is, is taking on humanity, said you shall call him Jesus because his name means he will save the people. That's what it means. It means God saves it's his role as the Christ, this anointed one, this, this king to be anointed to reign and rule. What he did is to save, or I'd say it this way, that his saving work is completely tied up with who he is. Let's connect the dots between him being fully man and fully God and us being fully saved. Question 22 in the New City Catechism says this, why must the Redeemer be truly human? The answer, that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. If you throw out the humanity of Christ, you throw out the gospel, you throw out the good news. Jesus Christ as a human did what we were always called to do, which was to obey God. That's what he did. He perfectly obeyed God. He did the thing that all of us have failed to do. That's why Christianity is a religion of grace because somebody else did it for us. Because of his divine nature, his obedience, or, or that his human nature, that he might on behalf perfectly obey the whole law. He followed all of it and then suffer the punishment. He substituted himself and he took the punishment that we deserved. And then you get this great add-on that the New City Catechism adds, which comes from Hebrews, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be human. God is not distant from us. He actually wrapped himself in humanity. He knows what it's like. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? Let's look at question 23 from the New City Catechism. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering, listen to this, would be perfect and effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Jesus, as a man, perfectly obeyed the law and as God provided an eternal offering that we might be fully saved. Jesus is fully God who became fully man and still stayed fully God that we might be fully saved and welcome fully into a kingdom where he will fully reign. I love the way Justin Taylor says, he says, only Christ as God could bring a sacrifice of infinite and eternal value to God that he would propitiate heaven's wrath 
By virtue of his divine nature, he is able to earn for us eternal life and favor with God. Jesus had to be truly God so that he could satisfy God's wrath and secure for us true righteousness in life. I hope you hear what's on the line here. More could be said here, but certainly not less. Taylor helpfully says this. He says, if you like shorthand categories, the Redeemer had to be truly human in order to suffer and sympathize. The Redeemer had to be truly divine in order to satisfy and secure. Abide is a really important word in this text. We have abide in the truth, and then in verse 27 we have this, abide in Him. These two abides relate. We want to know the truth about Jesus so that we can truly know Jesus. Give me an example. Katie and I, we are celebrating our... um, 22nd uh, wedding anniversary here in in August and I will no doubt get her a card and I will write in that card and say things like Katie I adore you you are unbelievably lovely you are a phenomenal partner to do this whole life with I think you are absolutely gorgeous I love your red curly hair I love your deep blue Eyes, I am so impressed by how well you serve your clients as an accountant on top of caring for our five kids. Now, if Katie opened that card up, imagine how she would feel knowing this. If you haven't seen my wife, she has straight blonde hair. She has hazel green eyes, not blue. She works as a teacher, not an accountant. And we have four, not five kids. Some of us, we don't know who Jesus is, and so abiding in him, having devotion with him, worshiping and glorifying, enjoying him, it's just fuzzy because we're off. I say all this because as we go through these Q&As and we talk about hypostatic and we have all this doc- doctrine isn't dry, it's relational. The whole point of it is that we might be devoted to the God that we actually know who's real. We might, and it might spring up into doxology or worship to him. It's going to end this. Like when I, when I think of Christ and I, I think of fully God becoming fully man that we might be fully saved, I, I often think of this Charles Wesley hymn, uh, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. So we see who Christ is rightly in a world that's trying to skew our view of him. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. My gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name. Listen to this. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ear. Tis life and health and peace. Because he's fully God and fully man, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. Me. His blood availed for me. To God all glory, praise and love be now and ever given by saints below and saints above the church in earth and heaven. Jesus is fully God who became fully man while still fully God that we might be fully saved and brought fully into a kingdom where he will fully reign. Let's get that right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word, the warnings of your word, and the clarity of your word. 
And in light of a text like this, I want to recognize that apart from your presence, from the work of the Spirit, that we can read the creeds, we can read the catechisms, we can read doctrine, we can hear verses quoted, but they won't be real to us. And so I ask that you'd make them real to us. Would you make who Jesus is, according to your word and your truth, real to us? There would be no question in a world of competing and confusing claims about Christ that, that through you, you would cut through all of that fog and all of that um, distraction and you would show us who Christ is. It's the most important thing we could ever come to know is who is Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.